Hey, howdy. How's it hanging? Okay, so, sorry, that was weird. Um, let's try this again. Uh, thank you for joining us, listeners. How are you all doing? Okay, that was too strong. Let me do one final take. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to American Student Radio. Here on 99.1 WIUX and all your favorite podcast streaming and listening platforms. I think I need to do like the same. Hello! Hello. Live um, from... Yeah, uh, awesome. awesome. Okay, great. Sounds like empty live from Indiana. Live from, uh, live from Indiana, Indiana University, University in Bloomington. Bloomington. This is... This is hot. It's a hot mic. This is American, American Student Radio. Radio. That's pretty great. Is it like a sound or is it like... Fresh, crunching snow. Two hours of finger picking... Very good ASMR content. <laughs> Tragic, but also really beautiful. This week, our team here at ASR is bringing you stories that focus on the topic of awkward. Life can often be weird, uncomfortable, and just downright strange. Today, we are sharing the stories of all things out there and just plain weird. I'm your host, Jack Bassett here to take you on one freaky ride. With so many opportunities for clumsy interactions, jobs in the service industry can be draining, discouraging, and downright deadly. In this piece, producer Pilar Bernarski takes the awkward over-the-counter conversation to its extreme. Hello? Hi, hello? Hi, hello? Hi. Hi. Hey. Hello. Hi. What can I get for you? Um... Uh, do you have any, like, seasonal? Yeah, there's pumpkin, cotton candy, peanut butter, mm. cup. Mm. Mm. Is the pumpkin vegan? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I think I want something that's more like fresh laundry. Like, I'm pulling those warm clothes out of the dryer into my mouth. Well, there's a lavender right here. Ooh, that sounds exquisite. It's vegan too? Yeah. It's a plant. And can I get that with soy? Sure. Milk? Do you still want the whipped cream on the bottom? Is it vegan too? No. It's cream. Yeah. Is that for here or to go? The whipped cream? I'm not going to stay here. I'll put it on my tab. Please place the last scan item back in the bagging area. What? What? Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay. You hear this music? Blue dot session. Here you go. I'll have that right out for you. Just right out. Okay, thank you. Right out. The dining world and service industry has my utmost respect and sympathies after realizing what cringeworthy interactions they have to deal with on a regular basis. Keeping the uncomfortability going, our next piece from myself with the help of Kara Simon and Alexa Chrisavergis takes a look into the awkward experience of first dates, as well as the little voices inside our head. This is. This is. This is. This is. The voice in my head. The voice in my head. The date starts the night before. Thinking about the possible outcomes of tomorrow eat away at my soul. Tossing and turning for hours, I argue with myself. Should I do this? Do I back out? No. Chicken. You can do this. Comparing myself. Comparing him. Thinking about her. Thinking about me. How am I going to present myself? What should I wear? What do I want out of this? Do I want to date her? The factors are endless. Anything is possible. I can't sleep. When I finally drift off to sleep, it thinking. haunts my dreams. Scenarios of the good and the bad. Nothing is for sure. All the different possibilities. So much remains a mystery. The uncertainties. I get out of bed. I wake up. She's on my mind. The first thing I think of is him. Her smile. His name fills my phone. Her way and with my words head. are all I can think of. Even when I don't want it to. Why can't I get this out of my head? Sometimes you just need peace. I feel insane. But he won't leave. Mesmerized by a stranger? We haven't even gone on a date, and he already has found a home inside of my head. Am I crazy to like a girl I've never even met? This shit always happens. I'm a psychopath. What if I like him more what than if he likes me? She's a psychopath. I have to calm down. Deep breaths. Deep breaths. I endure the cold weather. I freeze up like the frigid weather outside, and focus on the now. And the coldness in my heart and thoughts as I return to my room. I, I actually have, have to, get to look ready. presentable. My hair is flat. My face is stubbled. My foundation caked. My hands cracked. That's it. God, I'm ugly. I am not going. I can't go. I declare to no one in particular. Like anyone even cares or is listening. I sit at my desk. I fall back in my bed. Looking in my mirror for a solid five, five minutes. Five more minutes. You're a bad bitch. You I repeat are over a and over. dude. Maybe it's the swig of mouthwash you accidentally swallowed instead of spitting it Whether out. that is actually me or the Ariana Grande blaring through my speakers talking. But it's giving you a buzz of confidence. I cannot tell you. I can't be sure, though. But it helps. All I know is it helps. He texts me. I hit her up. Again. I speed but off. this time, he is on his way. The cocky the attitude that once I filled I me drifts gone. away as I speed down the highway. 
The billion butterflies in my stomach are all fluttering at once. The engine fire is strong and steady. Flapping their wings Leading without a Leading this car with confidence. Cannot relate. I can't relate. Is he this nervous? Gosh, I'm nervous. What if he kisses me? What if I get Even too scared worse, to kiss her? What if he doesn't? What if she doesn't kiss back? I stress some more until the dreadful ringing of my phone. I call her. I'm here. I don't even have to look to know it is him. Damn. I walk outside. She's outside. And I see him walking up the path towards me. An actual human. She's a living, breathing, beautiful woman. Much more than the tiny words on the screen. She exists outside of a phone. More than the words and the name filling up my headspace. She's not a catfish. He is here in front She's of me. She's the girl in her pictures. Palpable. Smiling. Smiling. Smiling at me and extending his arm towards me. What are those in his hand? Oh yeah, flowers. Gotta give her the flowers. Flowers? This is creepy. First date flowers? Do girls get guys anything on a first date? Do guys date? get girls things on the first date? Do boys like flowers? Do girls even like flowers these days? I definitely did not I don't know the, the rules, rules for this. For this kind of thing. The voice in my head quiets. When I finally step outside of my head, I am feeling something I have not felt in days. I'm actually feeling something. I feel at ease. Comfort. The conversation is flowing. We aren't awkward. We aren't awkward. What? Who knew this could this happen? This can't be real. We talk more, and then it gets Wait. quiet. She stops talking. Not even awkwardly quiet. The conversation halts. It's quiet. The pause in conversation makes me nervous. Come on, talk, talk, talk damn talk. it. Somebody. My brain screams at me. Be the man. Don't let awkward win. Come on. So I talk more than I should. We aren't even at dinner, and I have already told this boy my entire life story. She won't stop talking, though. But I cannot stop. Yet, I love every word pouring out of her mouth. We get to dinner, and I am telling myself to apologize. Hmm. Why is she apologizing? I don't even know. Hmm. Being annoying? Maybe she thinks she's annoying or talking too much. We sit down, and I feel at ease again. She's calm now. We both are. Dinner is over, and I survived. Car rides are awkward. We sit alone in the car. But here we are, no distractions. This could get awkward, but here we sit, with no distractions. Just him and I. Oh gosh, just her and I. I want him to look at me. I want his attention. I look at her before I drive away. Don't look away, I plead in my head. I stay focused on her face. He doesn't. I hope she's feeling something. It all feels right, and I'm not ready for it to be over. Gosh. And I don't think he wants it to either. I don't want this moment to fade away. I can't just take her home yet. We drive around, looking for nothing, but looking for everything. There's nothing else to do but just share this moment. Just to be together. together. But like most good things, the night has to come to an end. At my door, we linger. Fingers intertwined. Hands shaking. Arms swinging back and forth in the space between him and I. So much pressure. Come on, just pull her close. It's not that weird. She likes me, I think. Come on, you chicken. We finally close the space. I don't think. I act now. He kisses me. Wow. She tastes like cherries and vanilla. What a woman. In this moment, I could fly. As he walks away... I begin to fall. I begin to feel. What could I have done better? I feel good. Real good. Every movement, every word said, analyzed bit by bit in my mind, repeating over and over. I wonder how she feels. Did I get too weird? Not weird enough? I need answers. I pull over and I type.
My phone rings again. I cannot wait to see you again, smiley face. I read that message over and over. Those seven words meaning more than one could imagine. As I climb into bed that night, I am giddy. I'm home. Giddy as can be. I am excited. I am content. The restless nights of yesterday have been replaced. Goodbye overthinking and hello happiness. That night, his name fills my head. She's back on my mind. But that night, it is not a burden. It's a gift. It is welcomed. It leaves my mind quiet. The voice in my head is silent. The voice in my head is needed no more. With Valentine's Day just around the corner, I'll be listening to the little awkward voice in my head, hoping to score a date like no other. Our next piece is from Sheila Regavandran. She talked to people about the first time they used a tampon and explored what women are taught, or in some cases, not taught at all, here in Sex Ed. I was like 13. I think I was 12. 13, 12 or 13. I think I was 14. Um, it was awful. It was uncomfortable because it's like not normal, but it didn't really hurt after you got the hang of it. It was just a very awkward feeling. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't really know how to use it, so it was like, it kind of hurt. It just it didn't scary. work. <laughs> I got my first tampon by sleuthing around my friend's bathroom. We didn't have tampons at my house, but she did, and I wanted to try it. They were in a little pink basket in the cabinet under her sink. During my next period, I unwrapped the yellow paper, and inside was a long cardboard cylinder, and inside of that was the tampon. There was no applicator, no syringe type of thing to help insert it. Was I supposed to use the cardboard to help push it in? Should I ditch the cardboard entirely and just use my fingers? I tried both and neither worked, so I gave up. A few years later, I tried a tampon again, this time out of desperation. I was dog-sitting for a friend one morning before school when I realized the crimson tide had struck and I was completely unprepared. I rifled through my friend's bathroom closet looking for pads, but she only had tampons. I had 15 minutes before I needed to be at school and didn't have the time to experiment with different ways to put it in. The tampon had to work on the first try. I held my breath and stuck it in. And it worked. And it changed my life. Maybe that's dramatic, but it kind of did. See, the first time I had ever heard about tampons was in my fifth grade health class. It was that day when they split the boys and girls to tell us about puberty. And my teacher, as a joke, warned all the girls to make sure we put the tampon in the right hole. She said, wouldn't want to put it up your pee hole. And then she laughed. I was horrified. Could that happen? Uh, The first time I tried to use a tampon, I put in one that was probably too big. I probably didn't need one that big. I needed um, my stepsister to help me, actually. (laughs) Yeah, my cousin put it in for me. I tried it until it worked, and it didn't feel like, you know, like, you know, when you put a tampon in wrong, and it's like, hurts really bad. I was like, this is horrible. I can't go on like this. But no, no one, like, really taught me how to. It's no secret that sex ed in the United States is extremely vague. According to Ascend, an organization that works to promote sexual risk avoidance, about half of the United States don't even require sex ed in schools. 
In fiscal year 2017, the U.S. Congress allocated $90 million for abstinence-only sex ed, according to the Guttmacher Institute, which supports sexual and reproductive health and rights. With sex ed being something that is swept so far under the rug, it's no wonder that young people don't know where to get access to birth control, or what to say to bring up a conversation about sex, or even how to wear a tampon. For American Student Radio in Bloomington, I'm Sheila Raghavendran. Music in this piece was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Educating ourselves on our bodies and our overall health in general is important, no matter how awkward the subject matter happens to be. It is important. Period. No pun intended. Up next, American Student Radio's newest member, Max Sandeffer, discusses awkwardness and the role it plays in current comedy on television. Join him as he provides an in-depth look into the history of cringeworthy comedy as well as its impact on the entertainment industry, on the new generation of Americans. Hi, I'm Maximilian Sandifer, and welcome to my first segment. I'm happy to join this amazing crew at American Student Radio, and I'm excited to see where this adventure takes me. Thanks for listening in, and I hope you all enjoy. always been a bit of a comedy buff, whether it's listening to stand-up on the Nine Bus or laughing at the newest college humor clip on YouTube, comedy's played an important role in my life. But no comedy reaches a wider audience than that of television, with a Nielsen estimate of 119.9 million U.S. homes owning a television. Television can do anything from providing simple refuge from the worries of the day to inspiring us to get out in the world and flex our creativity. This simple glowing box shaped a large chunk of my personality and helped make me the outgoing, outspoken person I am today. But delving back into my early high school years, I noticed a trend. Much of the comedy on television I watched was extremely awkward. And that's what made it so funny. This brand of awkward comedy, known as cringe comedy, has become ubiquitous with this generation's sense of humor. Website TV Tropes defines the genre as placing characters in the most embarrassing situations possible, or having them say the most awkward or offensive thing possible at all times. And growing up, this generation has experienced what is considered to be the golden age of cringe comedy on television. We get to see the lines between real life and comedy blur and become unbelievably, laughably close to real life. In fact, when listening to this blip, When I said that I wanted to have kids, and you said that you wanted me to have a vasectomy, what did I do? And then, when you said that you might want to have kids, and I wasn't so sure, who had the vasectomy reversed? And then when you said you definitely didn't want to have kids, who had it reversed back? Snip, snap, snip, snap, snip, snap. I did. You have no idea the physical toll the three vasectomies have on a person. The overall effect on the audience oftentimes feels unexplainable. It can leave some squirming uncomfortably, while others laughing uncontrollably, all while testing the limits of what's socially acceptable. This unique comedic style has only grown in recent years, becoming a redefined part of modern comedy. But 
To really uncover the larger scope of cringe comedy, it's important to take a look back at its origins, its impact, and its future. Cringe comedy, like any genre, has shaky origins. Many TV historians argue that it started with the classic TV show Seinfeld. Created by the titular character Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David in 1989, this sitcom went in uncharted comedic territory, especially with characters like George Costanza. Most of us can't help but laugh as he screams for Jerry and Elaine in a crowded movie theater, only for it to end up that he's in the wrong theater, screaming to no one. But still, this begs the question, do these cringy moments qualify the show as truly cringe comedy? Well, going back to the creators from earlier, if Larry David sounded familiar, then it's probably because you've heard of his 2000 show, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Larry took George Costanza's constant awkwardness and made a full-fledged sitcom, as uh, it followed a fictionalized version of Larry in his day-to-day -day life. This is considered the first purely cringe comedy TV show. Every episode in and of itself ends with a signature dose of cringe, followed by the music known near and dear to many. This sparked a hot streak of cringe comedy show after cringe comedy show, with underappreciated gems like Lisa Kudrow's The Comeback or modern-day classics like The Office. These shows came in full force and paved the way to modern comedy. But what brought these shows such popularity? I think Rain Wilson, the actor for Dwight Schrute of The Office, gives a great response. But what's so interesting to me is how much young people like that kind of humor. So much of the comedy is not in the setup, setup punchline. There's very few jokes on our show. It really is behavior, uh, characters behaving, and the reactions to that behavior. You know, they're seeing all of this absurdity, and it's like, if they could, young people would just be like, and just look at the camera. Um, so it's uh, uh, less a comedy of um, awkwardness and more a comedy of, of reactivity. These shows tap into what the young generation is feeling. We all have moments in our life where something unfathomably stupid occurs and we just wish we could stare into a camera in disbelief. These shows provide that release. With most of these programs notably lacking the ubiquitous <laughs> every 10 seconds, we're brought into a world of hilarious idiocy and witness the oftentimes embarrassing consequences for it. So what's this mean for the future? Well, much like all of television, it's solely dependent on what the public wants. In recent years, shows like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Impractical Jokers, and my personal favorite, Nathan For You, have fleshed out the genre and garnered rave reviews. Interestingly enough, we are even seeing so much desire for these cringe classics that a reboot for The Office is currently in the works, and Curb Your Enthusiasm was brought out of its six-year hiatus for a triumphant return to the screens. The future of cringe comedy looks bright and awkward as ever, if not more. Whether you cry tears of laughter or sink into your seat covering your eyes to the ever-so-infamous cringe machine that is the Scott's Tots episode of The Office, it draws a reaction out of you. So long as viewers enjoy cringing along to these socially inept characters, we'll see this brand of television survive for a long, long time. It's nice to know even Hollywood is full of the uncomfortable. Thank you, Max, for digging deep into the place of awkwardness in the mainstream. This next piece comes from the ASR Vault, a 2016 gem. Sometimes the easiest way to get over an awkward moment is to laugh at yourself. 
Stand-up comedians spend their time making sure other people are laughing at them, too. ASR reporter Carter Barrett interviewed one such comic to find out how you turn an awkward moment into a punchline. Um, I'm Zoe Debler. I am currently a junior at Indiana University, and I think I'm funny. Uh, I do stand-up and sketch comedy here uh, through Ladies' Night Comedy and also on my own independently at uh, the surrounding comedy venues like Bears Place or Comedy Attic. Mm-hmm. Zoe, do you do things that you think are embarrassing a lot? Yeah, I'd say pretty frequently, like at least twice a day I do something where I get pretty, I'm like, go oh, <laughs> And then, yeah, I just walk away generally. But yeah, that happens pretty frequently. Yeah. And um, and do you try to like work stuff that happens to you that's embarrassing into your comedy routine? Definitely. Uh, the I'd say the meat and potatoes of my comedy routine is just me talking about how embarrassing I am or like the embarrassing shit that happens to me. And do you think that like working in your routine kind of like helps you get over it? It helps me deal with the trauma in a sense. Um, I have the mentality that if I can laugh about it, then it's really not that bad. It helps, too, because if there's something really embarrassing going on and that I don't want to talk about, sometimes just bringing it up and, like, forcing myself to laugh at it and then, like, seeing a bunch of other people laugh at it and being like, this is the worst-case scenario. Like, everyone's laughing at this super embarrassing thing. That helps me get over it. Mm-hmm. So, And do you like being able to, like, see other people laugh at your misfortunes? At least you're, like, telling them about it. They're not laughing at the embarrassing thing. They're laughing at you telling them about it. Yeah, it it makes me feel good to see people laugh at stuff, mostly, like, because I'm an attention whore. But uh, it all it honestly makes me feel good somewhat. Like, I don't know if I'd go that far, but, like, it makes me feel better about the stuff that's happened to me because I'm like, if everyone's laughing at it, then it must be funny and they're interested. So it has to be. I don't, I don't know. Do you want to, like, share with us, like, one of the embarrassing things you've done that you talk about in your stand-up? <clears throat> yeah, uh, so this is a a bit that I've included in sets previously. Um, it basically involves uh, freshman year. I was at a party and was incredibly drunk, um, and I was hitting on this girl. So, you know, that's just a great start. <laughs> um, and so I was trying to hook up with her. And so the you know the obvious next step to that would be me giving her my number before I left for the evening. Uh, the only problem was that I was so drunk I could not remember my number. I could only remember my mom's phone number. So I gave this girl my mom's phone number. Um, she ended up booty calling my mom like several times that night, and then I got a bunch of texts from my mom telling me that a number from the Bloomington area kept <laughs> calling and texting her, and she wanted to know if everything was okay with me. So the next morning, I like see all these text messages from my mom, and I'm like, uh, so I have to call my mom and like explain the situation because I still wanted this girl's number, you know. So I had to tell like explain to my mom that I have like absolutely no game like, i can't even give a girl my number but also please could she help me and give me this girl's number and you know so would you do it again <laughs> i don't i don't know i mean i do a lot of embarrassing things but i do one thing i can say is i don't really repeat them i just find a way to up the ante and like shame myself even more so i don't know what's next like having like a group message orgy contact my mom like maybe that would be what's down the line 
on the theme of embarrassment because that's what the show is about. What do you do when you mess up on stage? That's a funny question because I'm usually, I don't mess up. (laughs) uh, No, Uh, when I do mess up, I guess the first thing I have to, you, I think this is important for any comedian is you can't blame the audience if a joke falls flat because I think that's like the gut reaction is that you think, either me especially anyways, I think, oh, I'm so funny. They should have laughed at that, blah, blah, blah. But if it wasn't funny, it wasn't funny. So the first thing I do is like reevaluate, be like, yo, okay, it didn't hit. That's okay. And then I move on and I just tell the next joke. Like that's really all you can do while you're up there just remain calm and not freak out and then afterwards adjust and see why it fell flat Mm -hmm. do you think like comedians are better at dealing with embarrassment than a lot of people or worse i think that's debatable um maybe i think the comedians i know are because a lot of times we're just so like we see everything as material. Like, it's kind of an annoying habit because you just, like... I think if you talk to a comedian long enough, you realize that they're just, like, trying to... They're trying to grab material out of every life experience they get. So they're looking for the funny side and everything, which isn't always the most, like, endearing trait in a person. But I think because of it, it does make comedians a little bit better suited to handle those embarrassing situations. Mm-hmm. What's the most embarrassing moment you've had performing comedy? Uh, Like, back in February, I had to do this show at a Relay for Life performance. Um, I I was with Ladies Night, and we were performing for a group of predominantly uh, Greek, a predominantly Greek audience. So their style of humor is very different from mine, and also the acoustics in the place just sucked because we were in an indoor track, so you couldn't even hear what I was saying. Um, so I made this joke about labias because, like, that's just a frequent topic that I, that comes up in my stand-up. Uh, I'm just obsessed with vaginas. But it didn't really hit well, I think. The point of the joke was that a lot of people don't even know what the word labia is. And I think a lot of the audience didn't know what a labia was or had heard it described the way I described it, i.e., like, the... Like, put- Um, so it didn't really hit well and a lot of people actually like gasped and like stood up and it was really really awkward because I've never been like that out of place in an audience I don't know why I was there uh yeah that was that was like the worst stand-up experience I've ever had (laughs) and how did you feel like after that I felt like getting drunk and I mean you haven't stopped making that joke have you Oh, no. Does it usually land? Uh, it usually does. That's that's one of the situations in which I do think the audience was a factor in the joke. Yeah. Not hitting correctly, but my I could have come up with one that would have hit better. Yeah. So. Do you think that, like, comedians should, like, tailor their jokes to the audience, or... I... I don't, I think it depends. If you're going to an event like that, like I was, I think I, like reflecting, I really should have tailored it because I knew the audience I'd be performing for was probably going to be different than the audience I normally performed for. So in that situation, if you're accepting an invitation to perform somewhere and you know it's a different audience, I think you should tailor it. But otherwise, if it's your show, you, you, you know, they're coming to see you. So if they don't like it, they can leave. That's my opinion. True.
Transforming the uncomfortable into something beautiful is what awkwardness is all about. The awkward experiences we create when we just simply want to order a meal, or the awkward sounds we hear in our heads, or the sounds we don't even hear at all. The level of outreach awkward has within media, in stand-up comedy, or even when it has to deal with your own period. We all experience the absurd, and there's no escape from it. We are all awkward. Thank you for tuning in. We will be back with our next episode, focusing on all things love. Stay awkward and have a great day. American Student Radio is a student-run audio storytelling group at Indiana University in Bloomington. We broadcast new shows every Sunday at noon on 99.1 WIUX and on our podcast. Find us wherever your ears listen to podcasts. Our theme music comes from Lunamatic. You can follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice or find us on Facebook and Instagram. We'll be back with more stories next week.